today, finally, McDonald's threw open the doors to its first restaurant in Moscow. And make no mistake, this was an event of major gastronomic proportions. If you'd been watching the news that January day in 1990, you might have wondered why everyone was being so extra about a Mickey D's. A feast in the time of plague. The words of Alexander Pushkin, Russia's greatest poet. On the square that bears his name and statue, Pushkin now contemplates McDonald's. This was the start of a new era of globalization. American brands and culture would soon be found all over the world, and products from China and Mexico would become ubiquitous in the U.S. This was how we lived for 30 years. Then in February, with global supply chains already shattered by the pandemic, Russia invaded Ukraine, and McDonald's decided it had had enough. Coming up on Today Explained, what McDonald's Exit West tells us about the future of globalization. Support for Today Explained comes from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. If you like spy thrillers, or indeed Elizabeth Moss, then you might want to check out FX's The Veil. It's an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. Oh, I'll go. One woman has a secret, same here, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. It's Today Explained. I'm Noel King. McDonald's was in Russia because of globalization, the flow of people and money and ideas and stuff all around the world. It's meant to be a good thing. Your country produces the things that it's best at producing and exports them, and it imports what it can't make cheaply. And then came the pandemic and Russia's war in Ukraine, both of which have some very smart people asking, is globalization changing? We were really keen to come up with a new word that captured the idea. And I, I literally spent about five hours, as have several people, desperately scrambling to come up with some sort of single word. And I'm afraid we actually fa failed. I'm sorry to tell you. Patrick Fowles is business affairs editor at The Economist, the OG pro-free trade publication. Patrick, there is a long history. You know, if you go back a long time, there was a burst of globalization before the First World War, so in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And then the First World War and Second World War really exploded that world completely. And in the ruins of the world in 1945, there was an attempt to rebuild connections between countries. And most of that, to be honest, happened between rich Western countries. The big event really happened after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mr. Gorbachev teared down this wall. 
And in the 1990s, you saw uh, what some people call hyper-globalization begin. And that's when countries all around the world begin to become more connected, when Russia, China, India open up their economies and try and connect more with the West. China's economy has grown faster than that of any other major country, a true heavyweight in international trade. And for some time, really for the 1990s and much of the 2010s, that system was really very successful, integrating ever more closely and, and in effect being something of a global boom. There was a moment when all of a sudden I and millions of other people became aware that everything I bought had a Made in China sticker on it. And I wonder which countries became most economically dependent or most integrated with each other? Typically, it's countries with their next door neighbors. So America, you know, it's Canada, Mexico. Uh, if you're in Europe, it'll be with Germany, France. Italy, Britain, etc. So those connections are still the strongest. But the big thing that's different is there are long distance relationships between the West and Asian manufacturing countries, particularly between the US and China, with China obviously making a lot of stuff and America buying that stuff. What were the links at that point? Um, let's say starting in the 90s, when you talk about globalization going into hyperdrive, the Berlin Wall coming down. What were the economic links between the United States and Russia? There was some trade in energy, pretty limited, but you'd be staggered by how small the connections were. I mean, obviously, there were diplomatic links, but really the level of economic connections were minuscule. Um, you had maybe one or two, a handful of Western consumer brands with a tiny presence in Russia. What did it mean for McDonald's to open up in Moscow in 1990? Why did everyone make such a big deal out of that? Well, I suppose McDonald's represents, in a way, everything the, the Russian communists hated, right? Huh. Muscovites are used to queuing up for something to eat. The difference at McDonald's is they promise there'll be something left when you get to the head of the line. It's kind of junk food, it's easy, it's very homogenous, it kind of represents a particular part of America. It seems simultaneously trashier and better than whatever <laughs> food they had locally. So it's a sort of a bit of a kind of love-hate relationship, which I think we probably all have with McDonald's. I don't like it at all, he says. It's not Russian. It's very beautiful, but um, I expected more, I think. So for it to open up at the heart of Moscow, where, you know, Stalin and Lenin had worked not that far away, was a really huge symbolic moment. It's a cultural milestone because we suspect the Soviets are about to learn what Westerners have known for years, that political systems come, political systems go, but junk food is forever. And I should add, it's still true now that when McDonald's opens or spreads in a country, it's very much a sort of symbol of it becoming more integrated, and even now. In fact, to your point, the writer Thomas Friedman had this thing called the Golden Arches Theory of Conflict Prevention <laughs> in the 90s. And the idea was... No two countries that both have a McDonald's have ever fought a war against each other. Yeah, I mean, behind his observation is kind of a really serious point. Essentially, it's that when countries are linked economically, when people have more contact with each other, when people's jobs depend on what happens in another country, when your 
savings and investments are partly reliant on something happening in another country. When those connections are tighter, this theory went, the odds of conflict go down, that people have a bigger stake in keeping things peaceful, keeping things stable. Now, there are many examples of this being true in history, but obviously there are many examples of it not being true. But I think what Thomas Friedman was arguing is in the 1990s, after decades of a Cold War and huge geopolitical tensions, a new, more promising era was opening up where you had America as the dominant power, the policeman of the world, and the prospect of everyone getting richer and more prosperous through trading and getting more economically connected. And wasn't there also an idea, Patrick, that as countries got richer and more open and more integrated, they would also get freer? There would be more world democracies. Yes, and if you read or study the people who were running the Soviet Union as it collapsed and tried to sort of see the future of that country in the very early 1990s. I mean, they really did, many of them believe, it would become, you know, like Europe, like America. And similarly, when China began to open up, certainly a big chunk of people felt the ultimate direction was not just that it would embrace McDonald's and Starbucks and buy, you know, German cars and drink French wine, but that there would be political reform as well, that capitalism and democracy, or at least a more liberal political culture, went hand in hand. When you believe in magic, the right can do. I believe in magic. I believe in you. When you believe in magic. In fact, one writer famously called it the end of history, you know, when everyone wanted to be capitalist and democratic. The brilliant young American political scientist, Francis Fukuyama, argued that the end of communism might presage what he called the end of history. He added a question mark in the original version. And then comes February of this year, and Russia invades Ukraine. And among other global brands, McDonald's says, we are leaving Russia. It's a wrap for McDonald's in Russia. After 30 years, the company will be shutting its doors because of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Is that moment in 2022 symbolic or significant, or is it both? I, I think it's both. I mean, it really sort of captures how things have changed. And, you know, what's happened in Russia is Western countries have left either because the sanctions imposed by Europe and America have forced them to leave, or they've voluntarily left because they think it's immoral or the customers in the West will not forgive them. So in the case of uh, McDonald's, a local firm has taken over the first original McDonald's branch in, in Moscow and, and reopened it under the name Tasty and That's It, <laughs> and essentially is now sort of operating it independently. The customers we spoke to were loving it. Russians can do fast food just as well, Ravil tells me. And as for Western sanctions and global brands leaving Russia, we are very tough people. You can't scare us. So yes, I think it is a, a really big symbolic moment when McDonald's leaves Moscow, just as it, it was when it arrived in Moscow. Right, and the owners of Tasty and That's It decided they didn't need to be McDonald's. Russia has hamburger meat, it has potatoes, it has chicken. What was that telling us about globalization? Well, I think you'll find is that a lot of what McDonald's buys is bought locally anyway. 
brands. So, you know, really what's global about McDonald's is the brand, the standards, the quality control, the menu innovations, and the training of the staff and so on. So can you do without that, I guess, is the question you're asking. I think probably you'll find that in five or ten years, the Russian clone of McDonald's is awful compared to (laughs) McDonald's itself. So, you know, we can all probably with some help from our friends, you know, run a restaurant for a week without everything collapsing. But if we have to run a restaurant empire for a decade, uh, that's when the difference between, you know, the leading company in the world at doing that and the local pretenders will become very clear would be my prediction. I think your prediction is right. I was reading that Tasty and That's It ran out of potatoes because of supply chain issues, and then the buns got moldy and customers were trying to take pictures of the buns, and then they banned the customers from taking pictures. So like the dream of globalization bringing freedom, in the case of Russia, it did not come true. Yeah, I mean, it may be the promise of McDonald's in Russia did come true in the sense they had a good product that people liked, but the wider political sort of symbolism of their arrival has obviously gone horribly wrong with Russia going in a very, very different direction from uh, what people hoped it would do in the early 1990s. Coming up on Today Explained, so are we not doing globalization anymore? Support for the show today comes from Shopify. You know, the concept of an elevator pitch where you like, you know, sell your idea for your product or your business in the time it would take to ride an elevator from the ground floor to the eighth floor or whatever. But what if you're so good at the elevator pitch that people want to buy your product on that same elevator ride? Are you ready for that? Shopify can help. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth as you go up that elevator. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you turn browsers into buyers and sell your products everywhere, even in an elevator if their service from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system. Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com explained. Go to shopify.com explained now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com explained. Support for the show comes from Shopify today. Shopify is, of course, the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. You know that friend of yours who's like on that next level yoga, who's like doing backflips? That's like Shopify when it comes to helping your business sell at every stage of growth. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you turn browsers into buyers and sell your products everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system. Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. And right now they're offering Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to give you a little boost and help you stress less and sell more. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com explained. 
Go to shopify.com slash explained now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash explained. The whole world is watching. The whole world is watching. It's Today Explained. Patrick Fowles of The Economist, I have a very specific memory from 1999. There were protests in Seattle, and I was a teenager, and I did not really know what was going on. But what I heard over and over and over again was that people in Seattle were really angry about globalization. When did the pushback start? One of the things to remember about globalization is it implies change and disruption, right? And if you think about Bill Clinton's presidency, you know, in the 1990s, a lot of what his political project was, was to reassure ordinary working people that they could cope with this new world, that it wouldn't see them lose their jobs, get poorer um, due to foreign competition. Good jobs, rewarding careers, broadened horizons for the middle-class Americans can only be secured by expanding exports and global growth. So I think the seeds of of some of the mistrust and, and concern were then. There were these big protest movements by the late 1990s. But really, things didn't, in terms of the backlash, get full momentum, I think, until China began to be a a really big presence, uh, which was after it joined the World Trade Organization in 2001. And that's all the scale of China's trade and exports really gets significantly bigger. By adding China to the WTO, we strengthen the organization by further integrating China's 1.2 billion people and $1 trillion economy into the world market network. And then in almost every country, the concern arising that that jobs would be lost to factories and manufacturing companies in China. And there was something to their worry, wasn't there? The evidence very clearly is that globalization is incredibly powerful Uh, in terms of reducing poverty and improving the world. And that's because lots of very poor countries and middling countries get the chance to integrate with richer economies, to trade, to develop. But the cost is that there are clusters of uh, people who, particularly in the West, see their jobs destroyed. The numbers are clear. The U.S. government has certified that at least 700,000 Americans have lost their jobs due to changing trade flows resulting from NAFTA. And originally, economists and politicians sort of said, well, you know, those people who lose their jobs, they'll find different jobs because the economy will change. You know, so, for example, in the U.S., There's less manufacturing. On the other hand, tech and healthcare are much bigger than they used to be. Mm. The total number of jobs has gone up. So what's the problem? But actually what we've discovered is if you live in one of those forgotten places, it's very, very difficult to escape. And that created pockets of deep anger and resentment across the West. Right. And then in 2008, the word global was everywhere again because of the global financial crisis. Did any countries start to unintegrate to say maybe globalization is not all it's cracked up to be? Let's do some of this stuff at home. Yeah, I mean, we've we've looked at this at The Economist and we've used the term globalization to describe what happened. Hmm. And that's when you began to see the level of corporate globalization slow down really sharply. 
And then on the political side, you have figures like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, who seem to be speaking directly to people who've been hurt by globalization and winning them over. And that didn't really get to prime time until, of course, you had Brexit in, in Britain. We want our country back. We don't want it run by the EU, which are, in my eyes, very corrupt um, and sort of like a dictatorship. And the election of Donald Trump. The future does not belong to globalists. The future belongs to patriots. And then we had the pandemic and then we had Russia's war in Ukraine. Well, if you look at the last few years, there's, there's been three shocks. So one is the pandemic, which has caused chaos in supply chains. And, and, you know, we've all experienced empty supermarket shelves, the costs of things getting up, big delays in, in buying stuff. The other is China. So China has decisively turned away from political liberalisation and is now in the hands of a clearly autocratic and illiberal and in some ways dangerous political regime. And then the last thing is the war in Ukraine. So all of that, those three sort of shocks of the last few years, I think have finally tipped most companies over the edge. So these supply chain shocks, we think have knocked um, about 1% off global GDP. That's a really, really big number. To my mind, after a decade of globalization, we're now in a totally different phase where companies are actively seeking to redesign how their supply chains work. A really good example is Intel. That's Intel, the computer inside. You know, if you go back, um, Intel before the 1990s was kind of an all-American company that made semiconductors, the chips inside devices, and it was pretty US-centric. And then in the age of hyper-globalization, it began to outsource a lot of production to Asia, particularly Taiwan. In uh, 1990, 80% of semiconductors were built in US and Europe. Today, 80% in Asia. And now what's happened is Intel says it wants to bring it home. And it's redesigning how it works and building these huge factories in America, actually also in, in Europe. And the whole idea is to reduce the reliance on Asia, China, Taiwan, where the geopolitical risks are high, and bring supply chains closer to home where they're more reliable uh, and safe, or at least this is the claim. And the amounts of money Intel is spending are jaw-dropping. Intel is going to be investing billions of dollars in a pair of new plants for chips in Ohio. The other area, just to mention quickly, is energy. So uh, the, the war where Vladimir Putin has used the threat of cutting off Europe from energy as a weapon, I think has decisively changed attitudes in Europe. And there's now a huge scramble to try and shut down reliance on Russia. The real problem is like, where else do you go? And in the short term, Europe's having to pay much more to buy, for example, gas from the Middle East. Uh, but the long run hope here is that as the world shifts to renewable power, solar, hydro, and wind, that some of these problems begin to fade away because in most cases, that renewable energy will be created and generated at home, lowering the dependence countries have on hostile energy supplies.
I wonder if you can do a thought experiment for me. So in 10 years, if the world continues with its skepticism of globalization and begins to pull back a little bit or a lot, what might my ordinary American life look like? How might it be different than it is today? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there are kind of two different parts. One is there's a kind of rational adjustment to deal with some of the problems we've been talking about, which probably means that the, the pattern of globalization is more regional, that the links with really nasty regimes are smaller. But in essence, the world stays open. The worst case scenario is obviously that the world begins to break those economic links. And as in the 1930s, that that intensifies political tensions around the world and actually leads to a war, particularly with the US and China. I think that is a possibility. But, you know, you just take the idea of America kind of cutting itself off more from the world, doing more at home. You know, superficially, I think, that might be comforting. You buy American brands, there's less competition, you know, the world is more familiar, but I think ultimately it's far less attractive and that's because there'd be less choice. It would be more expensive. I think it would be more boring, Mm. you know, that Mm. you have less flow of ideas and weird things and original things and cool new things and inventions and flows of people to a kind of blander, safer, possibly, but more expensive and more uniform world. And in a way, you'd kind of, in some respects, be going back to the 50s, 60s, where I think you probably in America had a more secure social contract. That is, particularly if you were, you know, a white worker at a well-known company. But in other ways, it was a much more uh, kind of stale and one-dimensional world, I think. The optimistic view is we go from maximum globalization to three-quarters globalization, and some of the excesses, problems, risks, dangers are dealt with, but some underlying connectivity that links economies and people around the world is still there and and not going to retreat any further. Today's show was produced by Avishai Artsy and edited by Matthew Collette. It was fact-checked by Laura Bullard and Tori Dominguez, and it was engineered by Paul Mounsey. I'm Noelle King. It's Today Explained. Today Explained. 